So if you would turn to Exodus 17, beginning with verse 8. Exodus 17 and verse 8. Thank you. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand, Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. They held his hands up. The one on the one side and the other on the left, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek. And his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And the word Nisi in the Hebrew is only one word. (laughs) Just thought you needed to know that. (laughs) Praise God. You may be seated. It was uh, nine years, two months, and a little over a week ago that I preach from this text the night that uh, hands was laid were, were laid on uh, David Wright to become your senior pastor. And uh, we've had a interesting journey since then. Transition is never easy, uh, but if you'll notice in this text, it wasn't transition. One didn't start and the other stopped. What, was, what happened in this text was two roles were very clearly defined for a common purpose. There's a lot of very significant principles about the work of God, the things of God, and the plan of God that are revealed in these few short verses. Time will not permit me to go into the depth with them that I might uh, 
really enjoy doing and you would be benefited by, I believe. I will say this to you, if I could, please. One generation fights its battles, wins its wars. And the next generation cannot inherit their victories. The next generation may learn from their victories. But the next generation cannot inherit their victories. And uh, to think that that can be the case only leads to defeat. Because... Transition always gives the adversary that has had one foot on his neck for some period of time an opportunity to test to see if things have changed. And I'm not talking about myself as an individual and the senior pastor as an individual. I'm talking about us as a body. And there are, there are assumptions that are made. There's a reason why when a man gets older, it is to the benefit of the people that he is leading for someone younger to take over the primary leadership. It's, uh, It's essentially obvious why, but if you're not in that position, it's maybe it's not as literal to you. Paul itemizes in one passage all of the different things he went through. He was beaten with 40 stripes a couple of times. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked, night and day spent the deep. Uh, he was stoned and left for dead. And then he said, and besides all this, besides all of this, the care of the churches. If this is just a denomination, if church is just a religion, if we're just here going through the emotions and keeping man-made rules, then Basically, you can be a success just by keeping people happy and uh, solving what major crises that come along, and then you could just keep on just going on, just repeating yourself. But you can't do that in a spiritual situation. It's not possible. It's not possible. The difference between religion and the true spiritual entity called the church is that those who 
are called. There are no volunteers in the ministry. I'll say that again. There are no volunteers in the ministry. I'm a, uh, uh, a fan, I guess you would say. Uh, I, I, I enjoy reading, uh, books about the different periods of, uh, uh, of especially the UK and Ireland and, uh, all the development of that history. And I'm, uh, I used to think I was one-fourth English and two parts Irish and one part Scottish until someone enlightened me that the spelling of my maternal grandmother's name is not Scottish. It is Irish. It's McCullough spelled with a C, not with an M-A-C. M-A-C is Scottish. M-C is Irish. So I'm three-quarters Irish one of the most despised peoples that have ever landed on the shores of America. If you don't know that, then you don't know much about American history. Uh, so three, three-fourths Irish, I guess, and one-fourth English. And... Uh, I, I I really liked being Scottish because that kind of made me the UK, you know. And there's no Welsh in there that I know of, uh, but I I enjoy I enjoy studying the history. I enjoy reading uh, fictional books about it. Just that that kind of brings the whole different periods to life. And uh, if you're the firstborn son, you get everything. You get the title, you get the lands, you get everything. And if you're a son that's not the firstborn son, uh, you uh, you had to find something else to do. And so even though you may be royalty, if you're the secondborn son, you're probably going to go into trade or in the clergy. That was the options, basically. Military was also in there. Uh, sometimes dad would buy you a commission. I don't understand all that. But that's what they did. They would buy a commission for a son, and he'd become an officer because his dad had the the money to buy a commission. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't in the military having to follow men who's an officer because their dad bought him a commission. But the point I'm making is that the second or the third or the fourth son uh, many times would go into the clergy as an option because they were not the only written difference is they weren't born first now if the the eldest son dies then it kind of gets passed down and you give up your your uh, uh job or your uh trade or you give up your uh clergy and you accept the title etc etc but you, you 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 no one truly be, get is it becomes a minister of God, a man of God, because he had no other options. And so you, you choose to do that because it's honorable and, and you're not the firstborn son. Nobody volunteers for the ministry. You don't volunteer. You're called. And if you're not called, you're not in. The Bible says of the, of the priesthood, no man takes this office unto himself. In the New Testament ministry, no man takes this office unto himself. 
I didn't go looking for God. He came looking for me. I was a child of God, but I didn't come looking for the ministry. I had a plan. I had something I wanted to do. Somebody I wanted to be. He came looking for me. And and that's an amazing thing when you understand here, this is not something you've coveted, you've longed for, you've sought for. He sought for you. He said, I'm picking you. And guess what? Before I picked you, you could pretty much live anything honorable and, and be faithful to me and you could go to heaven. But now that I've picked you, it doesn't really matter how great a life you live. If you don't obey my call, you're lost. The scripture says the teacher is worthy of or liable for uh, double condemnation. Because you're not only judged by what you read, you're judged by what you say. You, you, you have to listen to it. But the person that's speaking it is judged by what they're, what, what, just by the word, just like you are. But then the person speaking it is judged as the speaker. I have told many ministers, including both of my sons on more than one occasion, you can't not preach something just because you're not living it. You don't have that privilege. You have to preach the word of God that he says preach with whatever message it preaches. It doesn't matter if you're the only one that prays afterwards. It doesn't matter if you're the only one under conviction through what you're saying. You've got to preach it whether you're living it or not. Because that's responsibility. And so when he says, the care of the churches. Honestly, I did not because I grew in the, with the weight of it and I had the opportunity I mean, there was only my wife and I when I got here. So the weight of it grew as I grew, and it was so gradual most of the time that you didn't realize how much you were carrying. I, I, I never fully comprehended how heavy the weight of the day-to-day responsibility for a church is until it was passed on to somebody else. I didn't, I didn't fully realize it. I did not fully realize the absolute overwhelming weight of the responsibility of having to answer to God for his people. I'm going to say this again. One generation cannot inherit the victories of the previous generation. Each generation must have their own fate, fight their own battles, win their own victories for their own faith and the confirmation of their own faith. And so my role is different now than it used to be. This is not an exact compliment, not intended to be an exact compliment of Thursday night's lesson, but it in one real sense, it is a compliment. 
mean it's complementary. I'm, I'm, one's not complementing the other. They, they, they mesh together to some degree without any intent to try to do that. There's a huge weight. There's a huge weight of responsibility. And you're never, there's no vacation from it. There's no hours for it. It's 24-7 as long as you're breathing. And so I use this text by the direction of the Holy Ghost nine years and two months and a week or so ago. It was December the 18th, 2005. When we... when I changed roles and David changed roles. But notice, please, again, it wasn't one riding off into the sunset. What it was was there were changing roles. There was a change of roles. Moses told... <clears throat> Joshua, listen to these words. Listen carefully. Choose us out, men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Now, let me tell you the significance of this scripture. This is the first battle Israel fought as a nation. There were a few other battles recorded in the scripture, specifically the very first con- armed conflict the Bible makes mention of, and that's uh, when Abraham armed his servants and they pursued these five kings that had taken a bunch of hostages, et cetera, et cetera. But this was the first time that Israel fought as an army against an enemy after they left Egypt. First time. And the principles here are critical. There has to be one peop- one person giving the orders to the people, directing them in the battle, in the battle with them in the battle. And someone else who is providing the covering of authority. You have all the authority you want, but if no, there's no way to project that authority, nothing's going to happen. Be the best warrior in the world, but if there's no covering of authority, there's nothing going to happen. They have to work in tandem. There has to be both there. Except that you can't always see what is happening with the the provision of the covering of authority. You can't always see that. You can't. But I will say this to you. You can feel the difference. And I'm learning this. I said I'm learning this. I didn't say I, I know how to do this. I didn't say that I uh, I have learned this. I am learning this. I am learning how to do my role. I'm learning how to do that. Because to be honest with you, (laughs) 
Everything in me wants to be in the valley. Everything in me wants to be wearing a helmet, carrying a sword, a shield, looking the enemy straight in the eye, inflicting as much damage as possible to the kingdom of darkness. Everything in me wants to do that. That's not my role. So I'm going to say this to you, and, and, and I'm not done, but I'm going to say this, okay? I am not about to give you direction to do warfare. He is. He's going to give you direction to do warfare. My role is to confirm to him we need to be in warfare. That's my role. How to accomplish that is his role. And my role is to provide the covering of authority and oversight over what he's doing so you can participate and there can be results. <laughs> the Lord is amazing. He doesn't make this complicated. It's really easy to know when you have the victory. Having the victory doesn't mean that Every little thing is going perfect in your life. Okay? Having the victory means something positive is happening. Backsliders are coming under conviction and coming back to God. The lost are getting hungry and are searching out what it is that's missing in their lives and wanting to be saved. People are getting baptized. They're getting the Holy Ghost. This isn't complicated, you see. Victory is not complicated. It's not complicated to know when you have it. It's not complicated to know when you don't have it. It's not complicated. I've said this so many times. I have done hundreds of weddings in my 46 years of ministry. And I have never one time required people to vow and go have children. Why? Because if they will truly, honestly, sincerely abide by the vows they make before God and grow in their relationship with God, everything being healthy, they're going to have fruit to that relationship. There's going to be fruit to that relationship. And no offense, and I'm not trying to pick on you, but that fruit's not going to be fluffy. And isn't our baby cute? That's not your baby. It's your dog. It's your cat. It's not your baby. Okay? And there are some people who are so selfish, they don't want a child. And if that's you, I don't know. I don't have anybody in mind. I'm just saying what I feel to say. And the problem with that is that spirit creeps into the church. Let's just find us some pets so we're not inconvenienced. 
It's always amazing to sit on the platform and watch the faces of people that walk in the building and somebody else is sitting in their seat. That's amazing to watch. I love it. Some of y'all remember years ago when I just couldn't take it any longer in church. I said, everybody sitting over here, over here. Everybody over here, get over there. You don't have a seat here. Because we're looking for fluffy. We just want a little comfort zone. Somebody just love on us a little bit. Somebody doesn't require too much of us except what we want to give. We don't want a baby. We don't want offspring. They're work. I got news for you. Children are work. And they don't ever stop being work. The problem's just changed. Children don't ever outgrow problems. They just, the problems just change. And people don't want that. We've never lived in a generation, in in a time where people are so selfish they don't want children. Children are an inconvenience. And the problem is some people get saved for themselves and then they come in the church and they keep that same attitude. Somebody sacrificed. So you could get saved. It costs somebody something for you to get saved. Freely ye have received. Freely give. There's no such thing as receiving and not giving. There's some of you precious people. I love you to death. I honestly do. You don't think so. But to me, the greatest act of love is telling you the truth. Because a lot of folks don't want to tell people the truth. They're afraid they'll get mad at them and not like them. You know something? When you love somebody enough, it's not. it doesn't matter whether they like you. If you love them enough, you're going to do what's best for them. You're going to say what's best for them, even if they don't like it. You're not going to tell them what they want to hear. You're going to tell them what they need to hear. That's love. That's love. There, there cannot be. Hear me, this, this is not some rhetorical thing. As the bishop of this church, I'm instructing this, this senior pastor. Whatever your plan is, however you want to go about it, it's time for this church to war. How long will we war? Depends on how much fruit you want to see. You know what? <laughs> I said this to somebody the other day. I, I, you know, I know talking about the past, but you see, when you've ever experienced victory, real victory, it is so hard to live without it. When you've, when you've lived with true, real personal victory and you don't have it for a season, oh, 
nothing tastes right. Nothing is right. Nothing fits right. Nothing's right. When you as a church, a body, whatever degree of ministry you've got, when you, whatever, whatever portion or level you're talking about, when you've ever experienced true victory, you just, you get, nothing else is good enough. Nothing. Nothing else is good enough. Nothing. And yes, we're supposed to fight. We're supposed to fight as an army. But there were times in scripture when there were people, individuals, who were so distraught. Their hunger for victory, their desire to see God work was so great. As foolish as it might be in principle, their desperation drove them beyond principle. They went out and fought by themselves. Shamgar defeated, was it a thousand plus men with an ox, an ox goad. That's just a sharp stick. By himself, one man, so desirous of victory, took on and defeated a thousand men with nothing but a sharpened stick. You say impossible. No, I say that's unbelief. Because if you want it bad enough, you're not waiting around for somebody else to say, let's pray. You're not waiting for just a call prayer meeting. If you want it bad enough, If you want it bad enough, and I'm not talking about just preachers. You know what? I'm just tired of going to church and nothing happening. Out of the abundance of the mouth, the mouth speaketh. Out of the abundance of the heart. A lot of people got abundance of mouths, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. We live in a generation where we want somebody else to do it for us. We live in a generation where people prefer to be served than to serve. We want virtual church and a virtual relationship with God. That's all controlled by a remote control virtually. It's not really real, but it seems real. You know, the live streaming is really for the purpose of those who can't get to church. And for those that we're trying to reach in places where we can't reach by ourselves. It's not a crutch because you don't feel good tonight. That's not what it's for. Now, I'm thankful with all the traveling I've done and am doing to be able to check in and watch the service and see what's going on and keep up with what's happening. I'm thankful for that. But it's not a means to let lazy people justify themselves. 
This is not a statement against anybody. This is just discernment and in operation. Hear me right now. The the last time I remember this church being fought this badly was 1979. It was was rough. Oh, there were some good things happened. There was. We had some good services. But it just, just, there was something missing. And, and you can say, well, you know, who's to blame? I'm not blaming a human here or any humans. You know what's really amazing? The first, the enemy that Israel first fought in its first battle as a nation was fought over the years, probably another eight or nine times mentioned in the scripture. It was a battle against the Amalekites that cost Saul his kingdom. That's a big gap between Moses and King Saul. And the Amalekites were still around, and they were still causing trouble. Why? And the Lord said... Did you, did you read this? Did, did you see what it said? Listen to this. Listen. For, for he said, Moses built an altar, called the name of Jovanesi. For he said, because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from. From what? Put it on the screen, please. Last verse, Exodus 17. I want them to see it. What's it say? The Lord will have war with Amalek from my generation has already fought its wars with Amalek. It's time for this generation to fight its wars with Amalek. Not one of you were a part of this church before 1980, except her. You're sitting here as a result of the wars. Well, you were as a child, sorry. You're sitting here as a result of the victories in those wars. It's now time for this generation to fight its war with Amalek and win. Now, this is not a doomsday prophecy. It's not a doomsday prophecy. But you hear me right now. The scripture says the Lord's only promised three score and ten. Three times twenty, that's a score, is sixty. And you add ten and that's what? If you needed any reminder that this generation is ceasing to be the generation... In a couple of days, I will start my 70th year. 
So the point I'm trying to make to you is, I am not the current generation. And I am not God's leader for the current generation. Some of y'all got to get that through your head and heart. I said it the other night. It's one thing to have an emotional connection. It's a different thing to have a spiritual connection. For some of you, emotionally, she and I will always be your mom and dad spiritually. That's the emotional connection. Nothing wrong with that. But when you equate an emotional connection with the, with God's ordained spiritual connection, that's where you cause problems. That's where it's trouble. Well, I don't like that. Well, join the club, folks. I don't like turning 69, except for the alternative. I'm only 69 according to a calendar in some of your opinions. I don't see myself that way. I don't live like that. I don't act like that. I have a lot, there's a lot left to go that God's promised me I'm going to be a part of. I have a promise from God that I will live to see these things. But that's different. It's different. You know, I have not abandoned you because I've moved into a different dimension of ministry. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say this with this being streamed and archived. I'm, I really am. I have never, I didn't seek to be a bishop. I didn't seek to be a preacher. I didn't seek to be a bishop. I resisted it. The, the, the external board of trustees said, are you submitted to us? Yes. We say, God's called you to be a bishop and it's time for it to happen. You pick the date. We're coming. I wasn't given an option except rebellion. I certainly haven't sought to be someone ordaining other men as bishops. That's absolute truth for God. I'm going to San Antonio this week to ordain an awesome man of God as a bishop. Me. Not us. There's no us except the Lord and I. In February, I'm going to Dallas, Texas and ordain an awesome man, Bishop. In March, I'm going to Chicago and ordain an awesome man of God, Bishop. In May, I'm going to Ohio and ordain an awesome man of God, Bishop. And that will be 13 men over the last several years that I personally have been called God to ordain. And I got a list of about 12 more that have already said, when you feel it, when the time is right, you're supposed to come do this for us. I've never sought one of them. I've never gone to anybody who said, you're supposed to be a bishop and I'm supposed to ordain you. Not one time ever. What is that? I don't know what you, that is. I don't know what you call that. 
I'm not trying to put a label on it. Thank you very much. And you can keep your labels to yourself. I don't know what that is. But I haven't abandoned you because I'm doing that. But this generation can't lead this generation to where God wants it to go. That's not the plan of God. Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why doesn't God just wipe Amalek off the map and be done with it? Then how would he teach and train the next generation that they could trust him? How could he teach and train the next generation how to seek God to get what he's offering? How can he do that? He needs an Amalek. Is he responsible for Amalek being who and what they are? No, their own heart is responsible for that. But they are a part of the plan of God to bring the people of God to the place they're supposed to be in the next generation. And so, yes, from a very real and very specific context, we can't live in the past because most of you don't have a past to live in. Most of you don't have a spiritual past to live in. There's only a small percentage of us here that live through that past. The rest of you are a product of that victory. (laughs) Don't you owe it to the next crop to win the victory for them? Don't you have a responsibility to pass on what was passed to you? To do for the next group of people that are to be saved what was done to get you here? Don't you have a responsibility for that? So when the pastor gives you the marching orders and he says, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it and this is how long we're going to do it. It's not, well, did you let me hear from God? Well, that doesn't fit my schedule. It's a little bit inconvenient right now. Pearl Harbor didn't fit very many people's schedule either. Let me tell you how much God loves us. If we don't volunteer to stand and fight for him, he'll give us a reason to have to fight. That's not a threat. He loves us that much. He knows how important it is for you and I to have to fight the battles to move past these places in our lives. Do you know why? Because you can't win in war till you win the first war. And if you don't have a war, you've got to fight and need to win. You won't fight the most important war that starts all of that. What war are you talking about, Brother Wright? I'm talking about the war with your flesh and your will. 
Because if you don't fight the war with your flesh and your will and win that, you can't fight the war against the Amalekites of your generation and win. And without the Amalekites and without the need to fight the Amalekites, you have no pressing reason to fight and win the first war against your flesh and against your will. If you don't have any Amalekites, you have no cause to bring you to a place of death to self. And the greatest church growth principle there is, is except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's what God has promised you, folks. That's what God has promised this church. But you're so correct. You can't live in the past. You can't live in the past. The only thing the past can prove to you is if he did it once, he'll do it again because he's no respecter of persons. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is almost comical, Brother Lee. The amount I knew about spiritual warfare compared to the amount that this church knows about spiritual warfare is not it's not even possible to compare it every battle was fought by braille okay lord what are we supposed to do next where's the next foot go next what's the next step there's no one to teach that there was no way to know that. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. Let me let me <laughs> let me say this to you. Oh Jesus, do you do you understand? The Lord let them fight against the Amalekites, and I believe there was one more battle they fought before they came to the. Red Sea and the sent the, sent the 12 spies over. Do you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wind up here. I know what time it is. Okay. But do you know why it was necessary for them to fight those battles and win them? Because when they came time to cross into the promised land and the Lord knew what they were going to face, the Lord knew there was giants in that land, but he let them have experience. They had fought and won battles. He had proven to them that he was with them and that he would fight with them and that they would win. So that when they came to the Jordan River to look across there and then fight and scout out the land, that when the report came back, there's giants in the land. Two of them had gotten the message, Joshua and Caleb. We're well able. Let's go. How do you know we're well able? You remember the Amalekites? I mean, we were such novices. We didn't, we, we didn't know what to do. We weren't trained soldiers. We were just, we, we've just, we're a bunch of slaves. We're not soldiers. And yet God was with us and we won that battle. And I, and I read it today. I, I was, uh, 
leaving that doctor's appointment the other day. I think it was, no, it was two weeks ago. We went by the little gift shop, and there was a book stand in there. There was all Christian books on it. And I saw, i never seen this book before. It was a pictorial history summarizing every battle fought in the Bible. It's an awesome book. It's an awesome book. I'd never seen it before. I'd never heard of it before. It was really an awesome book. So I, I'd look through that today to, a little bit just to kind of refresh myself because I've studied most of that. But <laughs> I, I studied most of that, brother. I, so it was just a refreshment. And so anyway. <laughs> so uh <laughs> There were several battles. Every battle ordained of God. Israel won every one of them. So they come to the Jordan River and they, he sends the tw- 12 spies over there and, and 10 of them come back and say, oh, there's giants. We can't do this. Two of them says, don't, you guys don't remember what's been happening? God has gone to every battle with us and we fought every battle and won every battle because God is with us. Get this. Hear me. Listen now. When they decided not to go and God spoke judgment through Moses upon their, because of their unbelief and that everybody that didn't believe God was going to die in the wilderness before they did go in. All of a sudden, those unbelievers decided, let's, oh, whoa, let's go. Whoa. Hey, hey, we, we really are able. Let's go do it. And guess what? It was the first defeat of Israel. Because God didn't send them, he didn't go with them. They tried to make up for their unbelief by doing something out of the will of God in their own selves. Let me tell you something. I'm not going to read it because it's too involved. I'll get too deep into it. Let's take sowing seed and equate it to warfare. Let's take each one of those kinds of ground and equate it to a soldier's ability to win in spiritual warfare. One kind of soldier, he can't win because his heart's too hard. Your heart is hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's just too hard. Faith can't work in your life because your heart's too hard. So you lose the battle. And then there are those who... Boy, they got all kind of enthusiastic faith till the first little bit of opposition comes. And the scripture says, in the heat of the trial, the test, the first battle, they get offended by the word. I'm going to say something in the Holy Ghost. I'm going to say something in the Holy Ghost that could be the most important thing I've ever said in 44 plus years in this church. It is total lack of comprehension and understanding of God and his purposes to get upset with God when he allows you to go through a difficult trial or test, regardless of whether that's family problems or health issues or financial problems 
cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because my father is in control and he loves you and you are his children. And there is nothing that comes your way that he doesn't allow for a reason, for a purpose. And let me tell you something right now. If you get offended over the trial, you will eventually be defeated in the war and lose your soul. If you're offended in the trial, offended with God because of what, because of the path he's led led you on, and you don't like the way your life is and how it's turned out, Jesus said concerning John the Baptist, blessed is he that's not offended in me. And one translation puts it like this, blessed is he that's not offended in the way that I run his life. Do you not understand that your heavenly father knows about everything that has happened and will happen in your life? And you only have one responsibility to pass the test of trust because if you can't trust God in your tests you can't win the war in the battle there are people not sitting here tonight People that I love, some of whom that I had my hands on when they got the Holy Ghost. Some that I, that I personally baptized. Some that I have preached to and taught countless hours over the years. People that you thought were, 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 were solid in God until whatever that particular trial was. The death of a loved one. A financial downturn in the the loss of a house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they just couldn't trust God through their trial without ending up with a bad attitude. They got offended at the word. Oh, my precious brothers and sisters, you need to listen to me right now. I'm afraid to even turn my iPad on because the time comes up first before I can even get to the Scripture. The last thing in the world I want to be is inconsiderate of you. But this is a word from God and could very well end up being something that saves your soul. Hear me. He never one time promised that you weren't going to go through, if you get saved, you're not going to ever go through trials and tests. In fact, he, pr- he promised the opposite. John 16, on the screen, please. The last words of Jesus. The last words of Jesus. Before he went out to pray and was taken prisoner and crucified the next day, these things have I spoken unto you. That in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulations. And the Greek word there is literally pressure. Figuratively it's trouble. 
but be of good cheer. I've already conquered it all. Just hang with me and we'll make it through this together. I paraphrased it. Yes. Don't take the thing in your own hand. Don't come up with your own solution. Don't begin to accuse and murmur and complain. Don't accuse God of not loving you. Don't, don't say that God, that prayer doesn't work. The only thing I can promise when you pray is if you pray, you will be in fellowship with him. And whether he chooses to fix it right now or give you the strength to keep going through it, he will answer the prayer. He will answer the prayer. Do you understand? God is so kind. He doesn't throw you into the deep end of the pool. He leads you through some small battles to prepare you for the big one that's not for you. It's not about you. It's for so that you can be a part of what he's doing for the sake of somebody else. And as last year proves, it doesn't matter what you've done for God. You can't do enough to make yourself immune. You take this any way you want to take it. I've said this publicly, privately. I've said this all over the world. Sitting right there is the purest hearted Christian I personally know, and I live with her every day. I have, I don't know anybody that is more of a Christian in heart and spirit than this lady right here, and that's not me blowing smoke. This lady is the personification of a Christian. Her life challenges me every day. That's the truth before God. It would have been, I would have done anything to have been the one with cancer instead of her. Do you know how easy it would have been for the words to slip out of my mouth? Why her, God? Why her? I, if I had cancer, I, I, the devil would have all kind of things to point out to me why I got it. And none of them may be the reason I got it. But they'd all sound right. But I don't know, I, I live with, I've lived with her for 44 plus years. I don't know any reason for her to be punished. If that was punishment, why, why would her father be punishing her? Her of all people. I can't tell you the number of people that are not a part of the apostolic faith at all, that have said to her, either online or by text, email, or face-to-face, you don't know how much it means to us to watch how you've gone through this with such grace and spiritual dignity. 
Never one time accusing God. Never one time blaming God. And you understand that it wasn't a, from November until July. They weren't offering us any assurances. You understand that? There was no point where they said this is no big deal. When they said, up, oh, we can't do surgery. You got to start chemo now because that's our only hope of taking care of this. You, you, you understand what that was? Do you know the night that she first found out for sure she had cancer? The sweet nurse called us Christmas Eve, 2013. We sat through Thanksgiving not wanting the family to know that she had just, they just found something because we didn't want to ruin Thanksgiving. That wasn't easy. That's not easy. Why have we gone through that? Because you've got to, you can't get bogged down in today. You've got to see the big picture. Amalekites were necessary. Wars against Amalekites were necessary because there's some big battles coming that's not going to be, the outcome's not going to affect you personally. It may not, you may, your life may not get better or worse depending on the outcome of the battle. But there's hundreds and thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of souls whose eternal destination are going to be dependent upon what happens in that battle. And you've got to have learned how to fight and win. And then there's a third kind of warrior who's bogged down with the cares of life or the love of riches, or the love of pleasure. Pleasure's not the problem. It's the love of it. Riches are not the problem. It's the love of them. But cares is just bad. Because there's only one thing scripturally to do with your cares. And that's to cast them on God and give, them up, give up control of them. But you see, these people are soldiers that are not going to win in the battle because they don't win the first battle against their flesh and against their will. You don't win that war, you can't win any other war. You don't win that war, you can't win any other war. You don't win the war against your flesh and against your will to be in control, to run your own life. And just have God help you. Not going to win. But somebody who's taken the word of God into their heart. Faith. The love of the Father. They have his kingdom at heart. They can go through the little battles and the big battles. They're still battles. But they win those battles, preparing them for the big battle. Now this, please understand, Pastor, and I'm saying this to you in front of all these people. I'm not implying that you haven't led battles and we fought some. But this is a bigger battle than the ones you fought. It's time to engage in major stuff because you know why? God's put it in your heart that he's ready to do something at Antioch that he's ready to give a harvest at Antioch. Is that true or not?
He's put that in your heart. God's put that there. He wouldn't put that there to torment you. He's put that there to motivate you to lead this people to the next battle. It's a bigger battle. And this one isn't about you. Forget the cameras. Forget who may watch whatever's broadcast here and get whatever benefit they may get out of it. Forget all of that. But sitting over here is a part of Antioch that's ministering in D.C. Sitting, I don't see. It's a part of Antioch that's ministering across the bridge. Sitting over here and others with him are part of Antioch that's ministering in the extreme southern part of Anne Arundel County. The last man up here is ministering in Prince George's County. Over here's a man who's ministering on Fort Meade. Here's some men that you don't realize that we're about to start a daughter work on the University of Maryland campus in the next couple of weeks. Do you understand something? That isn't cute. It's not something to just brag about. It makes you dangerous. The adversary looks over here at this group. They're all nice people. They, they, they may be nice. They may treat everybody nice and all that. They got no vision. They're not going anywhere. And they're very comfortable with the group they've got. And they're just really nice people. And over here, you got a bunch of sinners saved by grace out of every background you can imagine. Some folks on the verge of being reprobates before they were snatched out of the pit of hell. With a few good folks mixed in, and I don't mean good meaning better than somebody else, but folks that, uh, that were, that came here, uh, full of their goodness. Those are the hardest ones to reach, you know that, don't you? Right. So here, here you got this church full of good people that's just really nice. They're, they're just, and they're so well spoken of by everybody in the, the community. They're just really nice. And, and, and they're just, you know, they just do these few little things. It's just so community or it's just very nice. And, and the devil says, I don't have to worry about them. They ain't going to hurt me. Now it's this bunch of renegades and almost reprobates. Drug addicts and alcoholics and prostitutes and thieves and robbers and God only knows what else. And such were some of you. But they were washed. They were sanctified. Now this group over here, they're dangerous. They're just spread out all over the place. And I got a little problem with them because if, if one of that group catches fire, he's all connected to everybody else, that fire's going to spread really quick. I got a problem over here. That's not hype, that's truth. 
He's not wasting his time fighting these good people over here because they're sure they're going to heaven because they're good. He's not worried about them. They're not letting any bad people in their church to mess up their, their little playhouse. Now this group over here, whosoever will, let them come. Beloved, there's a bullseye on your chest individually and collectively. You don't have to like that, and you can try to prove it's not the case. But it's true. And some of you, the only thing you're doing wrong is you just put the cares of your life ahead of everything that's important in God. That's all. It's your life and your pressures and your problems, your cares. They're just, when I get these taken care of, I'm going to be committed. When I get these taken care of, I'm going to my pastor and say, Pastor, put me to work in this here congregation, this daughter work, this preaching point. I want to teach some Bible studies. After I get off, but I, this is taking up so much of my time and energy, I, I just can't, you know, I got to take care of this first. I got bad news for you it's never all going to be taken care of so you're never going to find the place and time you're never going to find the place and time well when my little ones grow up yeah and your little problems going to be bigger problems hey I got bad news for you. If your kids are your excuse now, they're never going to stop being your excuse. And then, when they go against everything you supposedly believe become reprobates, you're going to follow with them because you can't bear the thought of your little darlings being considered lost. Because you've made them your God all along. My poor sons are half retarded. I don't mean that a terrible word. I've, uh, it's, it's a wonder they can even tie their shoes because they were drugged to church, and kept out on school nights to late, and had to get up early for school. It's a wonder they, they, they can even add two and two. They were so abused, being taken out to church so late when they had school the next day. Do, the, I, do I need to interpret that? That was a message in tongues. Do you want the interpretation? Or did God give you the interpretation? Do you know why you stay home with your kids? Not for them, for you. You don't stay home for your kids. You stay home for you. Is that too strong? No, you don't know me. That's gentle. That's me being really nice. Nice. Not being nice is be calling names. Taking no prisoners. But I'm being nice. Oh, my kids are so tired. Yeah, I know. My, 
my wife had, she couldn't even play the organ. She had to stay home and take care of our boys, you know, because they, they're, they're, we wanted to teach them what was most important in this world. And we wanted to teach them their natural life was more important than the spiritual. So we just had church without music because she was our only music. And so she stayed home so that our sons could grow up and know that the world is more important and their natural life is more important than God. You know what was worse? <laughs> I tell you what was worse. She couldn't hustle him off to church, to, to school, and go back to bed. She was running the school. So she she couldn't even get catch a break. She's giving her guts all night. Her boys are sitting there tired, cranky, and she, she gets them in bed late, and they get up cranky, and she can't stay home and Feel sorry for herself. You got it so rough. No, she had to go to church to take care of everybody else's grumpy kids. <laughs> Why? Because the kingdom is first. It's the greatest lesson you will ever teach your kids. The kingdom is first. Hey. It is no secret in this church, and it's if the secret's out, because we are videoing, right, and streaming live. I do not believe that sports is sin. Never have believed that sports was sin. The things you can learn playing sports, you can't learn in any other venue. Like the old adage, there's no I in team. That kind of stuff, you know. And nobody has ever enjoyed watching their sons play sports any more than me. But they never miss church for a practice or a game. Ever, ever, ever. That is not the lesson we were going to teach them. Ever. That's not the lesson we were teaching them. Because, Well, you were the preacher. Really? Really? That's why we did it? We could have easily found somebody, a, a, a wonderful saint that would have been willing to run them out to the game for us. There were all kind of people that were, would, be, would have been willing to do that. No. They were, they were much, both of them much better athletes than I ever was. And it was a joy to watch them. Watch them succeed. Watch them struggle and finally succeed. It was a joy to do that. But there was something far more important. I was going through some videos on a DVD the other day that I'd switched from a VHS tape. And it was a very, it was hard to see, but it was a video that David shot in Africa in a church service where Brother Grossbach was in 1980. Four, when Joel was receiving the Holy Ghost at five, four years and ten months old, standing on the front seat, 
by himself. The Holy Ghost moved in that house. And without anybody coercing him, he raised his hands and he was praying. And the, and, and, and the, the Malawi superintendent, assistant superintendent, and I can't ever remember his name, was the one that had his hands on Joel's head when he first spoke in tongues. He wasn't even five months old, five years old. He said, that's pretty young. Yeah, but because his mother and I wasn't down there forcing the issue, I, 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 I was able to, to know this was really God. And I found the picture the other day. In fact, you, you, had photo, uh, you scanned the picture of him standing, uh, uh, me holding him, having my hands on his head praying, and that old horse trough that was out back of the building on Windsor Avenue. Some of you don't have a clue what that is. Our ba- the building wasn't big enough for a baptistry inside. We had the horse trough out back of the building. And there were times we broke ice off the baptistry to baptize people. Super cool water. He got the Holy Ghost in April. We baptized him that day. There was a crowd of people standing around. And, and I'm praying for him. He's seven years old. Let me tell you something, folks. This ain't about church. This isn't about punching the clock and marking off the calendar. That's not what it's about. Every one of you is important to God, and God's got every one of you in his own form of boot camp to make you into the warrior, the person first and the warrior second that he wants you to be because there's a lost world out there that needs people that's not in this for themselves. Show me a person, a young person that raised in the church that it never becomes about others. It's only about them and their parents. Allow that to continue to be without any guidance. And I'll show you a young person that doesn't survive when they're on their own. And it's time to make a decision. It's, it's hard. Now, I will admit, uh, there are times you do everything you can. You really do. You pray. You do everything you can. And, and everybody has a free will. And the kids can walk away. But the prayer is, if you keep praying, if they were able to walk away, hopefully they'll live long enough to walk back. I'm calling on this generation to rise up and fight your wars against Amalek. And there's some of you old seasoned veterans here. Whatever assistance you can be to this generation, whatever you can support, you can lend in the prayer meetings to be a part of that. I'm calling on you to do that. I'm calling on you to encourage participation and cooperation with the pastor when he lays the battle plan out. I'm calling on you to do that because it's time. It's not about this church getting big so that the bishop or the pastor will be famous. You can't spend that. Doesn't pay for an airfare. Doesn't buy a new car. You can't even buy a Whopper with fame. Fame's worthless. But if there can be a move of God...
it not only will help save your soul, but countless others. You know what? My God. Thus saith the Lord. Some of you have looked over in the promised land, looked at the attitudes of your families and friends, and have seen the giant opposition they have to this and have concluded they can't get saved. But I say to you in the name of the Lord, don't judge their potential for salvation till you first fought the battle. Because when you fight that battle, God's going to break attitudes and change hearts that right now look impossible to be saved. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on your children. Don't give up on your parents. Don't give up on your neighbors. Don't give up on your coworkers. Don't give up just because it looks impossible right now. Don't judge the outcome before you fight the battle. Should raise your hands, please. In your own words, if you're willing to do this, and only God knows if you're praying this at all. Here I am, Lord. I make myself available to you and commit to you that I'll be cooperative spirit, with leadership and participate as leadership leads me to war. Not only for the lost that I don't know, but for the lost that I do know, the backsliders and those that have never been saved that seem so hard. They seem so far away. It seems so impossible for them to be saved. But we're not going to look at the giant attitude and say, it's not possible. We're going to say, God is able. Let's fight the war first. I give all myself to thee. God is able. You've won some battles. Let's win this next big battle. And watch the, the giant attitudes begin to fall. So people can, can be saved. Come on. Right where you are. You don't have to come down front. You don't have to stand. You don't have to sit. Whatever you want to do. It's between you and Jesus. I commit myself Jesus, your spirit. as a soldier, let your spirit in the army called Antioch to be willing to be led and to participate so that we can defeat the Amalek of this generation so that souls can be saved. Jesus' name. Jesus' name. 